everybody. It's Mark Booth. We're here talking about experience-driven businesses again here with my co-host, Jeff Barrett. What's going on, my friend? You know, as a Shorty Award winner, I'm super excited about this interview, so I will just um, say that and let's roll. We've got a special guest on here today, Greg Gallant, who is the co-founder and CEO of the Shorty Awards and also Muckrack. Greg, how are you? Nice to have you. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Greg, why don't you kind of walk us through for those, anybody who isn't totally aware of what the Shorty Awards and what Muckrack does, talk us through your business. What are you doing? Yeah, sounds great. So the Shorty Awards are the leading awards for the best of social media. So we honor both influencers on every social platform, uh, be it Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, Musical.ly, and you know I'm sure some new social platforms will come out between now and the next one that we'll have to honor. And in addition to that, we also uh, honor the best brands on social media. And every year we get thousands and thousands of brands entering, most Fortune 500s. Uh, hundreds of influencers get nominated, and 5 million people vote, uh, which influences who ends up winning it every year. And yeah. it's kind of grown into a global uh, global phenomena. No, it's incredible, Greg. And then on the brand side, um, you have like a you have this real-time academy that um, judges the awards. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's right. So in addition to the uh, votes from the public, we have an academy it's got some uh, amazing people on it. Anyone can see it, rtacademy.org. Uh, the judges, both uh, the influencers, so they kind of, uh, in an algorithm along with the public votes, help to determine who wins among influencers. And then they solely judge the winners of the, uh, the brand awards. And on the Academy, we have both... Um, Celebrities on there like uh, Lisa Milano and influencers like Jenna Marbles and King Botch, uh, the co-founder of Instagram, Mike Krieger is on there. And then on the brand side, we have a lot of agency executives. We have uh, many CMOs, including the CMO of GE and Patron, and uh, just a lot of other really interesting people in the social world. That's awesome. Greg, we've been Jeff and I have been talking to to some really interesting people over the past couple of weeks, all with that central theme of of experience business. How how do companies focus better on becoming experience driven? Uh, you know, in in the noisy world we live in today, there are a ton of options uh, for who to do business with, and and we we have a pretty strong feeling that that the experience makes a big difference. Give us give us your thoughts on that. What do you think about the experience driven era that we're in today? Yeah, you know, I mean, what we find is really fascinating and in, in looking at a lot of the brands that enter the shorties is, is the relationship that people have with brands now where, you know, I, I think at one point people's relationships with brands is very transactional. You wanted a blender, all you cared about was, you know, does it blend well? But now consumers looking for brands that kind of align with their values. They look at like what kind of social good initiatives they have. They care generally like what it, you know, what it says about them increasingly rather than like going to Sears and buying a product, not, not that it's even an option anymore with, uh, with Sears's fate. But now, you know, there are these opportunities to kind of interact with the brand, you know, all the way through. So for example, Casper, has won many Shorty Awards over the years, and they're kind of a fascinating brand where 
they took a category like mattress where, you know, mattress where you just used to walk into a department store, kind of lying at probably never, you know, forget what brand of mattress you bought the second you put your uh, mattress cover on it. But now it's completely, uh, completely changed where you go to Casper. It's a website. They have really amazing content you can be interacting with on any social platform. You purchase it from Casper's website. Casper delivers it to your apartment. They even have kind of orchestrated the unboxing experience. So, you know, I think it's that idea where these kind of dull, what used to be very dull relationships are now kind of end-to-end in terms of how you're interacting with a brand. Yeah, it's, by the way, when your mattress just starts expanding for no reason in your house, it's like the coolest thing ever. And they've basically eliminated the reason for President's Day. But um, so going into innovation and brands doing cool stuff, um, you know, that's talking about the present. As you look toward the future here, I mean, this is going to be the 10th Shorty Awards coming up. So you've been able to see, you know, almost from the beginning of social media, uh, albeit not MySpace, but... How, where are we at in, and where do you think you'll, we'll see the next cool innovations with brands using social media? Yeah, you know, that's always a, a challenging thing to figure out ahead of time. But one of, one of the big themes I'm seeing is that social media increasingly needs to really be integrated through and through. So in like the early days of the Shorty Awards, there would be kind of some lone wolf Wolf social media manager who was probably just someone at you know relatively low level at a company who happened to jump on social before anybody knew what it was and took it when nobody cared about it and there was no no brand there and sim- simply you know the brand being on social was enough. Now it's less about like just one department that does social media, but how well social media is integrated throughout everything. And you look at a Casper, that's like a new company. So they were able to build it with social media in mind from the ground up. But I think the big challenge now are for companies that have been around for a while and, and have great brands and consumer relationships. They have to figure out to really make social work. How does it integrate throughout the company? So that means if um, a customer is tweeting a complaint to actually be able to answer in a smart way in five minutes, which might make all the difference, it means they had to have done a tremendous amount of work below the surface to have integrated their logistics department, their customer service department, maybe to be able to get legal clearance on make goods, things like that. So, you know, I think that's really interesting now is that the, you know, kind of the shiny thing you see from the company was actually the result of a tremendous amount of work and plumbing that they've been having to set up over the past several years and only soon will you start to see the fruits of a lot of that brands try and kind of um push into a social media strategy is by using influencers and tapping into you know instead of creating their own existing networks tap into other existing networks where do you see the 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 growth of the use of influencers and how do you think they're best utilized yeah, you know, with influencers, it's it's been a really fun thing to watch. Shorty Awards have always been, I think, the largest gathering of both influencers and brands all in one room because we honor both and it's this kind of really wild night to see them come together. And, you know, I, what we're seeing is I, I think in a way everybody thought 
of influencers as being something really transactional. You know, when social media was just getting going, I remember in the early days, the Shorty Awards, there were a bunch of companies that launched and got a lot of press where the idea was that you'd you'd simply go on there and say, okay, I'll spend $10,000 for this one celebrity to tweet about my brand. And so there's this one view of it that it would just be this marketplace and people kind of sell their influence for dollars in the super transactional way. And, and a lot of that is still going on. But I think the, the trend that's starting that I think will play out and win are brands really putting a lot of effort and thought into which influencers they want to work with and really going deep on the relationship. And, you know, it's nothing new. I just read... Uh, Shoe Dog, which is an amazing book. It's the autobiography of Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. And he talks about how they built that brand on partnering with influencers. You know, they were athletes. They weren't on social media yet. But it was finding, you know, athletes that hadn't been signed yet, be it Prefontaine to, of course, Michael Jordan. And it was, you know, the CEO, Phil Knight, was talking about how he spent a good chunk of his time building relationships with these influencers and they had an entire department and, you know, key executive that reported straight to the CEO whose job it was to maintain these relationships. So, you know, there's nothing new about the influencer business except that whereas it was once only at a few niches like sports, now it can affect every industry. But I think that the brands will have to start taking it seriously at a very high level and really put some thought and work into those relationships if they want to see any return from them. Absolutely. And Greg, from the influencer side, and here's a question I don't think I see asked enough. How are influencers who have been in the game maybe, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight years now, um, are you seeing, because you work with a lot of them, are they starting to realize that they have to kind of adapt, um, they're getting older, they've got to, you know, it's, it's interesting if you get into this and you're in your mid-20s and then you're in your early 30s like I am now, um, that you have to pivot a little bit. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on our influencers kind of having to pivot as their audiences change and expand. Oh, yeah. We, we see, you know, influencers kind of have to reinvent themselves every uh every couple of years. And, and again, I don't think it's anything new. You know, you always see celebrities that last for decades, you know, actors always have to reinvent themselves. They get typecast and they got to do an independent movie and break out. You know, if you think of John Travolta doing, um, oh, is it Pulp Fiction with Quentin Tarantino? So, you know, there's always been that. I think the difference is that for many of these influencers, they, they've they gotten their start with much younger audiences. Not all of them, but that's that's been kind of a big thrust of a lot of the new influencers over the past couple of years. And of course, young audiences are going to change their uh, tastes and their likes and how they identify a lot faster than uh, older audiences do just because you, know, you change more in adolescence than you do as an adult. So for a lot of these influencers, uh, that's definitely something we're seeing, you know, both with the audience and then also don't forget the platform. So, you know, we, we had a ton of Vine stars at the Shorties ever since Vine launched. And then, of course, you know, Vine, Twitter decided to shut Vine down pretty much. So, you know, they, they kept the content on there, but they froze the platform. 
So all the Vine stars had to, you know, thrust themselves into making long form videos, meaning anything over six seconds. So, you know, getting big on Instagram and getting big on YouTube. And a lot of them have done it successfully, but again, you know, they have to keep working and reinventing themselves to stay relevant. Greg, quick question. Uh, so kind of a two-part question, wondering for the majority of, of the big companies you work with today, what role do you think social media plays today related to being an experience-driven business? And what yeah, so role do you think it should play? The role it plays today for most businesses is one, of course, it's a marketing function. So, you know, they have a department whose job it is just to come up with stuff to post on all their social channels, on Facebook, on Instagram, et cetera. And then two is it's kind of the, the crisis center where something goes wrong in their business. Like it's probably happening on Twitter, be it the president tweeting about them or just, you know, some customer posting a video of something that happened uh, on one of their airplanes, let's say, not not to name any company specific. So, you know, there there are those two that I think every business is thrust into. But then I think like the big opportunity is to think how do you integrate it into the rest of the business, uh, you know, or, or as you say, the kind of the full experience of it, where on one hand, you could be using that, you know, big data and, and looking at all the data from all your customers, not just the ones that are posting some big crisis to figure out, okay, you know, how do people really like it when a package arrives? Are they posting about it? Are they not, you know, do a certain cohort of users post about the package arriving more than the rest of them? Maybe you can get an insight out of that for where to drive the rest of your business. Uh, you could, you know, look at um, if you're a retail, you know, how customers are doing in different stores and which stores are performing the best. I think the people who really want to, you know, delve into that can get kind of an un, you know, unprecedented amount of value because it used to be in so many businesses because you have, you know, channel partners or distribution partners or, you know, even just, you know, layers and layers of management between the CEO and the the frontline person who interacts with a customer. It used to be it was really hard to get that data back from the customers and you had to do you know, surveys that had tiny sample sizes and these kind of other arcane ways to get insights from customers. Whereas now, you know, they're, they're either already talking about you or they could easily be talking about you with just a little bit of prompting. Super interesting. So Greg, I'm interested in hearing over your, you know, many years of running the Shorty Awards, which customers or which winners better said, do you think have done, as we're talking about experience business, which of those winners do you think have done the very best job at creating a really great customer experience? Yeah, let's see. You know, I don't like to kind of uh, pick favorites because I, I don't actually get a vote in anything. I'm not on the Academy. We just uh, run the award show. But some of the cool stuff we've seen, you know, like I mentioned, you know, Casper has done great stuff. Uh, GoPro's always... Uh, done very strongly in the Shorty Awards, and they've done really an amazing job uh, cultivating their um, audience to make content that they can reshare. So they've been able to create this, you know, really powerful brand and set of channels without even having to make the content themselves. Uh, you know, early on, uh, NASA was one of the first winners of the Shorty Awards, and they, they've actually attributed 
that win to being able to get a lot more support and funding for their social media program. But seeing, you know, their continued use of that to get interest in um, space exploration and just being able to, you know, kind of drum up the public's imagination has been really, uh, really fascinating and something that otherwise, you know, might not get in the news cycle. Yeah, Greg, Starbucks and Apple use a lot of user-generated content. Starbucks famously with the white cup drawings, uh, Apple with these shot from iPhones. Um, one of the interesting things is I was writing an ink piece about this today and I dug into it and just how you know, consumers right now are fine with creating really cool content and getting a $300 gift card. Do you ever think that um, content creators on you know from anywhere will be reticent to engage with brands, or is that pretty much a tried and true transaction? Really depends on the person. I, I think there's fundamentally two groups of people where you're either an amateur, or, you know, by amateur that's probably not even the right word anymore, but you're you know not influencer, anyone who who doesn't make a living. <laughs> doing this where for, you know, and I, and I'm one of them, right? Like, I mean, I run a social media business, but I have a bunch of followers, but I don't make a living just off that. So, you know, I post to Instagram and to Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat because I love it. You know, I want to share with the people who follow me, my friends, professional connections, et cetera. And I have no expectation of making a dime off it. So, you know, a lot of times your brand retreats me like, I just think that's cool, even without me making a dime. And if some brand were willing to give me, you know, a couple, you know, a hundred bucks for something, or even if I was dining and someone gave me a free appetizer because of my social media following, it's flattering. So, you know, that's the 99% of people I think have no, rightly or wrongly, have no expectation for a financial return for using social media. So to them, it's all delight. But then once you get into the influencer segment, it becomes very in interesting because a lot of them uh, need to find a way to make a living off it. So, you know, they're very careful about making sure they get compensated properly. On the other hand, too, they need to uh, connect with their audience and, you know, be able to share what they will. So you see a lot of influencers still post about brands they love just because they love the brand, you know, they'll tweet about an Apple product they like, they'll tweet about a, um, they'll, you know, tweet about a restaurant they're at that they love eating at, knowing that, you know, they, because if they, if they had to get compensated by every company in the world that they ever posted about, they could never post anything organic. So, you know, with the influencers, it's really kind of can be a tricky relationship to know what should be organic and what should be paid. Yeah, it's funny you you talked about free appetizers, and I thought, oh, maybe this is the way we can save Applebee's, because um, millennials always get blamed for killing every TGI Apple Chili's, Buffalo Wild Wings that exists. Um, for those kind well, of because we're bankrupting ourselves on avocado toast. This is great because I I told <laughs> told Mark in the last podcast we don't all love avocado toast. It's not every it's not every last one of us. Um, but what's kind of interesting is, do you see influencers um, avoid working with certain kinds of brands? Because, you know, generally speaking, millennials are the audience of influencers. And and they so here's kind of the catch-22. You've got to make money as an influencer. But let's say, hypothetically, Applebee's 
comes to you and says, we want you to eat good in the neighborhood. Like, do you see some struggle there from the influencer side? Well, in full disclosure, I actually am an Applebee influencer and I'm taking this podcast from an Applebee's right now. This is amazing. I just walked right into and, that. And I'm eating, <laughs> I'm eating their new experimental avocado toast. And <laughs> it is delicious. So yeah, then you are the expert on how to save Applebee's. Let's That's get right. into they're, this. They are one step ahead. Do, are they putting, they're putting dinners on top of other dinners right now, right? Hey, you know, sky's, sky's the limit. <laughs> That's a good question. Were I an influencer and approached by Applebee's? Yeah, that's a tr- tricky question. You know, what I mean, what we see is that the influencers, they're very, you know, a lot of people don't give influencers credit. You know, they think they're just some kid with a webcam and they got lucky, but there are a million kids with webcams and the ones that build an audience uh, do so because they're they're essentially entrepreneurs. You know, they are really working hard. They're spending every ounce of free time a day, often on the side of school or, you know, a day job when they're getting started, making content, connecting with their audience, you know, changing their content based on what the audience wants. So they're very savvy people. Uh, they get to a point where they want to be able to make a living off, uh, off being an influencer. And that always comes or, you know, almost always comes through these sponsorships. And they realize they're in a very tough spot figuring out how do I do stuff that still connects with my audience. And I think for the influencers, there's a spectrum where there's some brands that they already love. And if they got a check from them for talking about them like they do anyhow and could just talk about them more, they'd be in heaven. Then there are the brands that like they kind of like or you know could see themselves liking and a check would help. And I'd say that's where a lot of the deals end up falling. And then there are the brands that like they have no association with and their you know their customers don't like, but they're willing to write a big check. And I think that's the um that's a tricky thing. And there have been times that influencers do those and they lose followers that hurts their long term brand and you know, it's a continued struggle for them. I mean, there was that big case where uh you know, there was one Oscars where I won't say which one, but a big phone manufacturer sponsored it. Um, and the host was supposed to do stuff using the phone manufacturer's equipment. And instead they used their iPhone and, you know, which wasn't the sponsor. And you can tell when you post a tweet or a photo, how it's tagged, where it came from. And it, you know, I can't imagine what the conversation was like between the sponsor oh, and the, uh, the, the guys who sold that afterwards. So yeah, you know, it's a struggle and, and there are real consequences for influencers if they pick bad brands to work with or brands that don't fit with their audience because they built their entire business on authenticity and the audience is pretty smart at smelling through, you know, smelling through BS if they're, uh, they're you know, uh, chiming for some brand that they really don't like. You could have said it the other way, Greg. I, I knew you wanted to. <laughs> but no, it's like, yeah, it's it's because, and, and Mark, I'll let you ask a question. I'm just going to say, it's like, it's it's a very thin line between kind of being um, on brand and off brand with this stuff and, and looking like it's there's complete synergy or looking like that gif of Steve Buscemi wearing a backwards hat saying, hey, fellow kids. Totally. So, Greg, w- walk us through, uh, you've been in the social world for, for quite some time. Uh, and, and I'm interested in hearing your opinion on 
what are the top lessons that you have learned from being a social media practitioner that you wish more brands would Let's see. start so, using today? Yeah, backing up, it's been a fun run. I have a handle at Gregory on both Twitter and Instagram just from getting in early. So I've uh, probably one of the most aged millennials you could talk to about social media. And, you know, what, what I see is like the big thing is it really helps if you can get the CEO using social media in a really integral way. And I saw it with, uh, you know, the other, the other business I run is called Muckrack, and it's both a, a PR platform, so companies use it to do public relations and reach out to journalists, and we have a lot of tools for journalists. And we saw the kind of, uh, you know, what happened with a lot of newsrooms, where there were certain newsrooms that were very reticent to get on social media, where, you know, half the journalists wouldn't get on there and they'd say that, um, I don't have time, I'm really busy. And the second the editor-in-chief got on social media, everyone got on social media because no one's going to say loudly in their newsroom, I'm too busy for social media, when they are looking at their boss who's using social media and implying that they're using their time unwisely. So, it, you know, it's often like it starts from the top and from leadership. If they show that they understand new technology, are getting on these platforms, are figuring out, they set an amazing example for the rest of the organization. And then it also means that they understand it so they can, uh, you know, they can explain it. And, and there's just such a big degree where you can't, you know, a lot of these social platforms like, you know, take Snapchat and Stories, of course, which has now worked its way into every Facebook-owned social media product, you know, like, but like just that idea of using Stories, be it on Snapchat, Instagram, et cetera, you just can't understand it until you use it. So if your CEO hasn't used it and you're trying to propose ideas for what to do about Stories, you know when it's sold up, you know, there's not going to be... Uh, sensical feedback on your idea until everyone there has used it. It'd be like if you were, you know, playing the company Super Bowl ad to your uh, CEO and he's never watched a live sports game before. You know, how's he going to understand what a Super Bowl ad's supposed to do? So that that you know, having the leadership use it really makes a big difference. I know Jeff had called out a couple of companies that are that their senior leadership are really doing a great job on. On social, for example, T-Mobile, uh, Chobani, any others that come to mind of, of companies that are that are really yeah, just see, doing the, excellent work. Those are work two amazing examples. You know, you look now, like even at Chase, uh, Jamie Dimon started to get on Twitter in a much more real way. Uh, Beth Comstock at GE is a great example. She's another one of our Real Time Academy members. She was the CMO at GE and was probably one of the first Fortune 500 CMOs to really use social, you know, not to use it, not to have their intern post for them, but to actually be using it, uh, you know, day in, day out, tweeting their own things. And now she's been promoted to vice chairman. So it's obviously what social media can do there uh, from a career perspective, too. But yeah, those are two really powerful ones. And then, you know, we're seeing more and more entrepreneurs. Of course, you know, Elon Musk is an amazing example. Just can you imagine, you know, if you had to quantify what he's done for his company's Tesla Solar City by just tweeting himself and often, you know, creating entire news 
you know, huge news rounds about their latest uh, launches just by responding to one customer on Twitter. So it's, you know, really powerful. And I think when you see the newer big companies, because the founders were on social before they started their company, you can see it in an even more visceral way. Yeah, and we'll probably see more just as the nature of millennials become uh, increasingly, you know, more influential in their organizations. We'll probably see more of that. Um, you know, more of people like John Legere just having a um, slow cooker um, meal that he shows you how to make every weekend. Um, you know, I, I have to ask this question quickly because I think it's just we were trending toward it, but um, we have a president that uses social media a lot. Do you think that has? Do you think that will create? Any impact on how people use social media in the future? Because you were mentioning Jamie Dimon, who's kind of gotten more involved since that happened. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think that's a great example. I refrain from saying the CEO of the Trump Organization uh, is one of my examples, to steer clear of politics. But, but it, it, it is a great point. And I think that what it's, you know, what uh, Trump has done and, and kind of what this new environment of Trump staying on Twitter is done is it's made every company have to show what its values were. So in a way, it used to be that, hey, if um, you know, Chase is my bank, all I care is do they have low interest rates and you know, not charge me a lot of fees? And if uh, Applebee's is my favorite restaurant, do they have the, the uh, cheese fries and the dinner on top of dinner that I like? But now you want to know Hey, what's my bank stance on gay marriage? And you know, what does Applebee's think about uh, transgendered rights? And people are actually, you know, seeking these out of brands. And even if uh, you know, they might not just think of that out of the blue, but there'll definitely be some issue that comes up where they're looking for that brand, be it through their CEO making a statement or through a policy that they'll have to enact in their company, where do they stand on these issues? And that's become a big factor into who people want to do business with. So, and I think that was a trend that was going on for a while, but I think just over the, you know, since uh, the inauguration, that's just been accelerated where all of a sudden, you know, at this kind of pace we've never seen before, companies that have used to be able to move at very slow paces and thinking about where they stand on issues have to make these very quick decisions, you know, what are their values as a company and how, how are they going to take action on that? How's that going to manifest in their, in their words and in their uh, policies? Greg, talk me through um, as more and more companies are becoming more and more social, uh, executives are becoming more and more social. What do you think people need to be careful of? <laughs> uh, you know, we're in, a, we're in a time where, where everything can be available in, in a second's notice. What do companies and, and executives especially need to be careful about with social One of the big areas people need to be careful about in companies is, uh, how can I put it, aside from just making sure they're sober when they're using social media, uh, exercising constant good judgment. And that's really hard. But I think it's something new for executives. So there, there are a bunch of professions where you had to have good judgment about how to, in essence, speak in public for a long time. You know, politicians have had to have that for a long time. They're always on TV and getting quoted and talking on the record. Anyone who works in the news business has had to have that for a long time. 
anyone who works in the public relations industry has had to have known that for a long time. But corporate executives really didn't have to know that because, you know, they worked internally at a company. And unless they happened to be at a very high level, their whatever announcement they would make, you know, the one time a year they launch their new product, they send a one, you know, three line quote about that goes in the press release and the PR department will edit it and post it. And even for the CEO of a lot of companies, unless it was, you know, Apple or some company that was in the spotlight a lot. They'd get interviewed three times a year on CNBC. Their publicists would come with them. They'd get prepped on the questions ahead of time. They really didn't have to be a public person. Now, all of a sudden, you know, everybody's a public person, right? I mean, how many people are there in any modern corporation that are on social media, either you know, already identifying themselves in their corporate role or are an easy Google search away from being connected to the corporation they work for. So it's something new, you know, being a public person to 99% of the executives out there or even managers and, you know, frontline people a lot of times at these corporations. And, you know, having that good judgment of what to say and what's appropriate in public is a bit learned, you know, it's a bit of a muscle memory. Of course, you know, to some degree it reflects your values, right? If you're, you know, if you're a racist, you know, at the extreme angle, you'll be a racist in social. Uh, then the problem isn't that you said a bad thing on social, it's that you're a racist. So, you know, there are the extremes like that. But then, of course, there are things people, you know, otherwise good people say that are simply in bad taste and that shouldn't have been said in public. And I think that's something that's going to take a lot of adjustment for people to learn how to kind of act on this public stage. Yeah, that's that's really important, Greg. I mean, I mean, and we we know that lesson. We we are aware that lessons out there. But even even back a month ago, um, you know, that Google memo comes out, and some people are surprised at the reaction. But you you make a really good point. In fact, half of the time while you're doing it, I was like, yes, yes, keep going, Greg, keep going, because I mean that is kind of one of the most interesting things as you look for these companies to want to create more earned media, they have these sources of earned media sitting right there. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's what they can do, but yeah, it is a, it's a muscle memory. It comes naturally to some, it's a little bit more force for others. Um, Mark, do you have any other, uh, other questions? Yeah, Greg, just as we close out here, would love to hear from you as we've talked quite a bit today about the experience driven business. What, what are the things that our listeners should take and do today related to social media that will help them to become more focused on the I would overall say One is if, you're, if you haven't already driven into all the social media platforms out there, really push yourself to do it. And it's really hard because uh, you know we all kind of get – stuck in our ways at a certain age. And I'm talking about anybody over, you know, the age of 20, where you get on your social platform of choice and you use it the way you use it to keep up with your friends. And, uh, you know, I'll just tell you a quick story for me where I got on, uh, when I was finishing up college, Facebook had just, or I guess it was my junior year, actually, or one of the first 13 schools Facebook launched at. So I was on Facebook from the start. I got on Twitter at the start after interviewing one of their co-founders, which is how I got uh, Act Gregory on there. Again, you know, same with Instagram. And Snapchat came along. 
and I download Snapchat and I realize, you know, at this point, like none of my friends were on Snapchat. It was all, you know, much younger, younger people. So it's hard to appreciate how Snapchat works before any, uh, you know, any of your friends were on there. So we did, and that would have been fine for me, actually, if I weren't in, uh, you know, in business and needed to understand this. And I figured I'd be a big hypocrite if I ran the Shorty Awards and didn't understand Snapchat. So for one day at, at our companies, both for Muckrack and, and Shorty Awards, I declared it Snapchat Day and I banned all forms of communication except for Snapchat. So you couldn't email a coworker, you couldn't Slack them, you couldn't text them if you needed something. You had to Snapchat them. And very quickly, everybody at our company who didn't get Snapchat had to learn how to use Snapchat because they wanted to report a bug or request a purchase order or you know, even uh, do a group seamless order. So these very basic things. And by the end of the day, the half of us that were you know, outside of the Snapchat demographic understood how Snapchat worked and the idea of stories and how you make the videos and filters and all that kind of stuff back when Snapchat was really unintuitive. And it gave us a great edge to be able to figure out, okay, how do we work Snapchat into the Shorty Awards really early on? How do we work it into Muckrack early on? And then, of course, since you know Instagram more or less copied Snapchat, it set us up for where Instagram was going to and kind of just the future where social is going with more video. So again, you know, you have to use it to understand it. And even though it seems like social media is easy to use and it's just kind of what you do in your free time, there's always going to be some new platform that is going to be work for you to figure out, but you got to put in the work to get the insights into where you got to go for all this. I love that. Greg, again, we were here with Greg Gallant, who's the co-founder and CEO of the Shorty Awards, as well as Muckrack. Uh, sharing some really great examples with us, especially love the one he just barely shared about banning all forms of communication yeah. at his company except for Snapchat one day so that people would really understand and learn the program and the platform. Um, really great insights. Make sure you give you give Greg a follow on all of the different social platforms, and we will talk to everybody soon. Thanks.